and welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And I'm Finn Arne Jørgensen calling in from Nijmegen in the Netherlands this week. And we're happy to have all of you here today to join us in um, hearing about the book by Jenny Price, who's a public writer and artist called Stop Saving the Planet, exclamation point, an environmentalist manifesto, which is out with W.W. Norton in 2021. So we'll give it over to Jenny to introduce us to the book. Okay, great. Thanks. And it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I've seen the book line up in the past and the future, and it's really a privilege to be part of that, uh, that lineup. So thank you. Okay, so I'm going to try to be brief. Um, I want to start out by asking all of you to please stop saving the planet. Please stop saving the planet. Um, and I guess I'll just start the archetypal, do the archetypal narrative. The way I started was um, the way the, the origins of this book is I was living in Los Angeles and people were doing all these environmental things in Los Angeles, like buying five, like the celebrities would have five Priuses, you know, and this would be like a great thing, like, oh, Leo DiCaprio has five Priuses, or they were tearing down enormous houses and building even uh, more enormous LEED certified houses um, instead. And I thought, well, that's really strange. That's not going to do anything about, about climate change. And why are people doing this stuff? So I really thought maybe my next book, book would be about why, about contemporary 21st century environmentalism. And I thought it was going to be very different from the work I had done before about how people think about nature. Uh, but the more I thought about it, I was trying to figure out why people are doing this nonsense stuff. Um, the more I thought about it, I thought, damn, it's about the exact same thing that I've written about my entire career. I'm going to be one of these people who never writes about anything else, that it's about how people think about nature. And it's it's rooted, these, these, these kind of nonsense environmentalist strategies are actually rooted in this incredibly powerful Western idea historically of thinking about nature as something that's out there that is not human and of sort of dividing the world up into two spheres instead of really thinking about how we change environments to live and how we inhabit environments. So I ended up writing the book anyway, and the book itself starts with um, a question, actually two questions, but it starts with why after 52 years, right? The first is very American, um, I see there are a lot of non-Americans, but hopefully this will have some resonance. Why after 52 years, after the first Earth Day in 1970, which many consider to be the birth of modern American environmentalism, are most environmental crises worse? Pretty much all, almost all environmental crises have gotten worse on average, right? Climate change, plastics, hugely worse. Air pollution, water pollution, species extinction, imminent collapse of entire ecosystems. Um, the other question is actually, why, do, why does everyone in America hate environmentalists, which is an exaggerated question, but I actually think it's an important one and an allied question to the first, but I'll focus mostly on the first. And you could say, well, it's Fox News, it's the right-wing media, Exxon, it's these powerful global corporations, it's global capital. And I would say, yes, that's true, but it's also, we have to acknowledge the ways in which our strategies since 1970 have not been effective. Okay, the failures of American environmentalism, it's time to reckon with those. So the book has, uh, it's a very, very short book. Um, it has 11 reasons to stop saving the planet and 39 ways that you personally can stop saving the planet. And the heart of the argument, and I'll try to do this in about five minutes, um, 
the heart of the argument, well, I say that if you're worried about climate change, and I think all of us are worried about climate change and other all these other environmental crises, then the most important question you can possibly ask isn't how do we save the environment as a place out there? It's not how do we save the environment? It's how do, and if you want to save anything at all, the most important question you can possibly ask is how do we change environments to live? How do we change environments to create our stuff? And how do we change environments to create our wealth? And how can we do that better? So the real heart of the book then is I say basically, and I'm going to describe, um, describe some of the book in ways I don't really say it this way exactly in the book, but in the core, you, I think all of you who have written books know that you actually learn a lot of things after you publish a book. Um, but that if you want to understand that you cannot understand what American environmentalists have done and why they've done it and why they keep doing it despite the fact that it clearly hasn't been effective, unless you understand the logics, the environmentalist logics that flow logically from thinking about environment as out there and thinking about the problem as having to save the planet. Um, so this is, and how this has, and of course I'm echoing Bill Cronin, I'm echoing Naomi Klein, I'm echoing lots and lots of people, basically the entire environmental justice movement, and how this way of thinking has allowed people, and it's worked especially for folks who are more affluent, to refuse to ask real questions about how we change environments to live and how we can do that differently. Okay, and I say there's basically two big environmentalist logics and the book is essentially divided into those two halves. And the first is green virtue. We all know about this, right? I, as a virtuous human, am going to save the environment out there from all other humans, right? From humanity. That's a very virtuous thing to do. It's obviously rooted very deeply in uh, traditions, historic Western tradition, historically of associating virtue with caring about environment. So it's basically, I'm awesome when I save the environment or the planet, we use them interchangeably. And then the second logic I call whole planetude. <clears throat> and that's basically, if you think about the environment as one thing, as one sphere, then anything you do, what basically it's this logic that anything you do contributes to the goal of saving that one thing, right? That all environmentalist actions accomplish the same goal. So it's basically just do anything to save the environment, it'll all add up, okay? So those I think are the two environmentalist logics, almost instincts, I'm sure even in Europe, everybody's heard of these. And if you add those two logics together, what do you get? You get essentially just do anything to save the environment, you're awesome and it'll all add up, right? You're awesome when you do anything to save the environment and it'll all add up. And I think this is actually a pretty good description of the logic of environmentalist strategies for the last 50 years. Again, on average, the book is very arm wavy and general, but it allows you to ignore essential questions like what should we do exactly, right? Where should we do it? It allows you to ignore the fact that we concentrate environmental um, uh, problems in, you know, we, 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 we concentrate the pollution and the emissions in low-income communities and particularly communities of color. When should we do it? 2075, 2050, that's great, I'll be dead, right? That's okay. How much should we do? Just do anything, it'll all add up. And it totally collapses the, the who questions, right? Who is responsible? Humanity, right? Who will benefit? Humanity. Who suffers? Humanity. Okay, so I think it's a way of thinking, just do anything, you're awesome, it'll all add up. It's a way of basically avoiding the question of what do we need to do? 
what do we need to do, right? And so we have all these strategies like, and forgive me, Fenarn, but recycling, we can talk about that. Um, electric cars, carbon offsets, which is utter nonsense, but basically strategies that have proven to be fairly nonsensical. And I think they basically fall into three categories of nonsense strategies, or, or I'll say strategies that, that really fail pretty egregiously to ask what do we actually need to do. And those categories are as well, we need massive systemic changes in our industrial practices and, and in how in our economic practices. And instead we get this incredible emphasis on individual, um, the importance of individual action. Number two, we need to emphasize cleaning up messes at this stage of production, not producing these messes in the first place. And instead we get lots of strategies about how to clean up the messes after we've created them, like recycling, like carbon capture, et cetera. And then finally, using the problem to solve the problem. And this is a really big category. Um, this is basically using an economy that is designed to maximize profits and growth that is inherently ignores social and environmental costs to clean up the enormous messes that an economy that does that inevitably creates. So here you have runaway green consumerism, the idea that we'll, we'll just replace a jillion toxic cars with a jillion slightly less toxic cars. You have uh, carbon offsets, which is just this Byzantine insanity. Um, the system which is specifically designed to protect an, uh, an economy that prioritizes growth. And um, okay, so yeah, so you have those essentially those three categories. Okay, so I look at how do we think and then kind of trace it through these, these various strategies and see how it legitimates these strategies, how it makes them seem like they're going to work. Okay, so um, just do anything. You're awesome, it'll all add up. It's obviously a recipe for greenwashing. We've seen greenwashing just explode, I think in the 21st century. And I think what we have now is this frenzy of environmentalist activity, right? Environmentalism has actually become very mainstream, which is a good thing in the 21st century, but this frenzy of environmental activity at the individual level, at the corporate level, at the public policy level, and all of it is accomplishing very, very little, if even that. And at the same time, it's been, this is the question, why does everyone hate environmentalists? It's been extremely alienating to the people who actually suffer the worst from how we change environments so badly to live because we're not cleaning up the, the disasters in low-income communities. And at the same time, we're telling everybody how awesome we are because we're saving the planet. So it's been extremely alienating. And I think what you see is the upshot, I say after 52 years, and again, I don't quite say it this way in the book, is that I have this um, bullet point slide that I, uh, that I often show now, and it's the only bullet point slide I've ever made, I think, in my entire career. And it's basically what all of this now adds up to is that I think you get four things. You get environmentalism of good intentions that's doing very little. You get an environmentalism bad intentions, this explosion of greenwashing. You get an anti-environmentalism of the poisoned. It's all been very, very alienating. And you get an anti-environmentalism of the poisoned nerves because I think all of this has made it very, very easy for the sort of ultra right-wing uh, affluent, you know, wealthy, um, class to basically blame environmentalists and say that they don't care about people and say, you know, and um, to, to, um, to, to attack uh, environmentalist action. And so if you look at all of that, all those four things, it adds up to very, very little. Okay, so that's my argument in a nutshell. It's a bummer. Um, I try to make it fun, um, but it's a bummer for sure. Um, so 
I just want to talk about a couple other things. Um, the book is very, very different from anything I've ever done before. Starting, it's very, very short, um, but starting with the tone. So those of you who know any of my previous work, the tone tends to be like flight maps or my essay, 13 Ways of Seeing Nature in LA. The tone is more like, let's think about this. Let's sit down, let's have a beer, let's have a cup of tea. Let's think about this together, right? I do this, you do this, you know, maybe we need to do things differently. So I decided to try an experiment. Uh, I'm late in my career, I can do anything I want. And the tone of this book is more like, stop it. You know, it's like an angry, it's combative, it's take no prisoners. Um, and so it's, it's very, very different. It also doesn't have any footnotes. Um, I try very hard to only use facts that you can Google up in 30 seconds. So they're easily verifiable. I actually don't cite uh, secondary literature. Um, it's basically almost pure argument with only the facts that I absolutely need to put in there. It's like, it's, an it's a book that's almost pure id. So that's very, very, very different from anything I've done. I'm trained as an environmental historian, as I think most of you know. And there was just a, a round table on the book in um, H Environment. And Sarah Demick, who, who uh, had four people who did wonderful commentaries on the book. And she said, well, does this loosen or tighten the work of environmental history? Which I think is a great question, especially for this crowd. And I would say both. I think it does both, right? On the one hand, I'm using the tools of history to make this argument. That's pretty clear, I think, to scholars who read it, if not other people. At the same time, I often feel guilty that I sort of threw out half the toolkit to make room for a sledgehammer, right? So um, I think it, it does both. But I am trying to, to both encapsulate these really complex critiques of environmentalism that have actually been happening in the academy for many, many decades, and trying to put them into a package that's readable, that young people might actually get through uh, very quickly. You can book in 45 minutes. I think most people, it takes about a half hour longer. Um, so I'm trying to do that, but I'm also trying to add to that conversation, trying to shift it a little bit. At the heart, there's this really nerdy cultural analysis about green virtue and whole planetude. Um, and then I'm also trying to shift, I'm trying to take that environmental justice definition of environment as where we live, work, and play, and trying to shift that a little bit and say, environment is the foundation of our lives. The, the environment is the foundation of our economy, which I think makes it easier and simpler to think about the connections between uh, social justice um, and environmental uh, crises, um, that really it's that, it's that they're fundamentally connected. They're not two separate problems that intersect, right? Is that like, if you think about economy as how we change environments to uh, provide our needs and wants, to create our stuff and wealth, to provide our needs and wants, and how we distribute the benefits and the costs, then basically you can say that, um, that, that you know, a, a democratic economy, the foundation of a democratic economy is the sustainable and equitable um, use of environments and habitation of environments. So it really changes like the Green New Deal, you often people, see people talk about that as well. We have these two related problems and look, we can use them to solve each other. And I think there's a much more integrated way of thinking about it. So I am trying to make, in some ways, make the critiques of environmentalism more complex little bit more subtle. At the same time, I'm also trying to simplify these arguments and the arguments that environmentalists make. I'm trying to say that climate change is not an intractable problem. It's actually, we think of the climate change as this incredibly complex problem. And of course it is, but it's also not. It's also not. You can really boil down climate change. Climate change is not caused by, by greenhouse gas emissions, right? Ultimately, the root cause of climate change is, is simple. 
We change environments to live. We do that badly. We change environments badly to create our stuff. We change environments badly to create our wealth. And what we, the, in order to not create problems, crises like climate change and everything is becoming plastics, um, that you have to have massive changes in our toxic industrial practices to detoxify them. And you have to massively rethink how the economy works. Boom, it's simple, right? It's all about how we change environments. So at the one hand, I really am trying to boil it all down to this actually very, very simple way of thinking about environmental crises, both the causes and the solutions. Okay, I'll just end. Do I have just like two more minutes? Is that okay? Okay, I'll just end um, with talking a little bit about what have I learned in the course of writing the book? Because I, I always think that if you write the, the same book that you started out writing, um, it's gonna be a pretty boring book. Um, so, um, first of all, uh, this book made me angry, even angrier than uh, when I started. I'm actually very, very, very angry now about what's going on in the world around us, um, having thought about it uh, for a number of years. Um, I also, I would say that at this point, I'm just absolutely convinced that, that, that the problem is very, very simple, that it's what they say. Was this Kerry or Dukakis? I think it was Kerry's uh, when he ran for president. It's the economy stupid, right? It's the economy stupid. It's the economy. And I have come to believe that um, you know you can do carbon capture all you like, you can electrify the grid all you like, but if you do not address the fact that our economy is inherently designed to promote growth and maximize profits and not to maximize health and well-being, then you will never, ever, 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 ever make significant progress on any of these problems. And um, what you need is to look at the kinds of changes that, say, New Zealand is doing, where they have a what's it called, a well-being index, I think, or something like that, a well-being a well-being economy, I think they call it, or something. I can't remember, or Bhutan has the Gross National Happiness Index. I don't know how exactly that works out in the country, but certainly a good idea. Amsterdam says they're shifting to donut economics. These are the kinds of changes that I think, the only kinds of changes that will actually allow us to make progress. So if you look at the California Climate Plan, which is being touted as this great progressive cutting edge climate plan. It's, it's bunk, in my opinion. It's just bunk. It will do, it'll do absolutely nothing, just like the cutting edge climate plans in California have achieved essentially nothing in the last 10 years uh, since the plan was launched. Um, okay, so that's one thing I've learned is about economy. And then the last thing I'll talk about is, is what I think are the important questions about these crises in which the world is collapsing around us. I've written a book about how we think. And the first question I often get is, well, what do we do? Okay, that's how we think. But now you have to tell us what we do. You can't not tell us what to do, what to do, right? And I, on the one hand, that's, I'm not the person to ask. I know a lot of things about what to do, but I'm not the person who should really be saying that. That's not, I'm a cultural historian, a cultural critic. Um, but at the same time, I've really come to believe that what should we do is not the most important question by a long shot. And then it's actually distracting us from the most important question because I think we know what to do. We know how to do regenerative agriculture, right? We know how to create a more an equitable economy. We have decades and decades of literature on all these things, sustainable forestry, um, you, you name it. We know how to stop making um, 400 billion tons of plastics every year. Um, and 
you know, we have decades of literature and we have models all across the world in the US and actually even more probably across the world. And I think the treating, you know, climate change, like what to do about climate change is this incredible mystery is actually part of the problem because the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. Basically, we know the outlines of what to do about climate change. The, pro the question is, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? Why do we just keep doubling down tripling down, quadrupling down on all of these strategies that clearly are not working, that we have been doing for decades and decades now, most of them, that clearly are not working and refusing to rethink how the economy works, which is what we actually need to do. Why aren't we doing it? You know, those of us, I have young people I love. You have young people you love. We all have young people we love. Why aren't we doing it? Why do we just keep doing the same old stuff? And I think that question is the most important question, is a core question we really need to focus on. And it has everything to do with how we think about environment and economy. So I'll end my rant um, there. I get very ranty when I talk about this stuff. And um, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing what you all have to say. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, not actually as, uh, yeah, startling to to think about writing with exclamation points actually <laughs> when, when you're talking about um you know what what is happening all around us right now and and what i'm thinking of here is you know, william william hornaday who wrote at the beginning of the 1900s um in um one of his books about wildlife i mean i noted in in some work i did that it's it's full of exclamation points he, he was angry. He was angry at the extermination of wildlife, mm -hmm. you know, writing in, I guess that book was in 1912. Um, and, and yet, where are we, right? <laughs> we're, we're 100 years plus later, and, and we're in the same spot. Um, so my question, I guess, about that is, um, how do you think about the emotional your own emotional reaction to the subject, right? You said you're angry um, and how that, you know, does the book really only use anger as an emotion or are there other types of emotions that you think come out in the book as well? Oh yeah, yeah, that's actually a great question. I think it's the first time anyone's asked me that question in a year and a half, so thank you. Um, that's really a great question because the book is clearly angry. Uh, there's no question about that when you read it. And probably the first 30 pages are the angriest, which is probably a mistake. Um, uh, and they're probably the nerdiest as well, which is also probably a bit of a mistake. But um, yeah, I think there are lots of other, beginning with the, uh, the dedication, which is to my brother's children and grandchildren. I think there's some poignancy in the book, hopefully. Um, I think there's some hope in the book, especially in the 39 ways to stop saving the planet. And there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, I'm a smart ass, right? So everything I do, all the projects I do um, are basically hopefully fun and funny um, to some degree. And I really was very intentionally trying to use humor to leaven the anger because I don't think anybody wants to read a completely 100% angry um, rant and to make it, you know, fun as well and engaging. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of lightheartedness in the book as well, in a, in a kind of you know black humor kind of way. Um, yeah, other emotions. 
Yeah, I think those are probably the main. Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, your your point about humor, though, is, is one that's really, you know, mm-hmm. important and can be a potential uh, way forward in, in getting people to think differently um, mm-hmm. about these things that are, in fact, very serious, right? Um, yeah. And so Ursula Heise has, has written about that kind of use of comedy, right? Um, and I, I was thinking, you know, another thing that I heard in in your critique then has to do with the distinctions that tend to be made between production and consumption, right? So we, we tend to focus on a lot of these environmental initiatives on consumption side mm-hmm. of things. Um, right. And I'm thinking here about the whole hoopla about uh, straws, plastic straws. Oh, we're going to ban plastic straws. And so in most places now, in Norway, you can't get plastic straws. You have paper straws. Um, in most of Europe, it's the same throughout. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But it becomes exactly this question that you're you're speaking to, which is, yeah, but what's right. the bigger effect of just the plastic straws? Because you haven't yeah. dealt with, if you will, the... Yeah the production side, and you've in fact discriminated against people who actually might need plastic straws, um, you know, which has been one of the, one of the pushbacks there. Um, and yeah, having a child who actually needs plastic straws, I, I can speak to this. So, um, but yeah, so I'm wondering how you think about that production consumption mm-hmm. uh, tension yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's that's really a huge point in the book. Um, is this focus on consumerism and a failure to challenge consumerism is the problem? Actually, is a big part of the problem. But and it's not. I think the first thing that I think about is that, and I do talk about this in the book, is it's not accidental, right? That you have uh, companies like Coke and Exxon, and you know that have, and the Coke industries that have um, KOCH industries that have. Um, very, very purposely tried to push public policy and public understanding away from production to consumerism. So, you know, as early as the 1950s, when um, the legislature here in the U.S. was on the verge, when the problem of single-use throwaway plastics was becoming apparent, and um, the legislature was on the verge of passing bans on single-use, you know, throwaway plastics and Coke and the Dixie Cup and you know, the packaging and beverage industries just really mounted this powerful lobby. And that's where you got the Keep America Beautiful campaign, which is an anti-littering campaign, right? Which does nothing. And um, I mean, it makes our streets less littery, but other than that, I've actually become pro-litter, I think. You know, I think we should just all throw stuff where it is and then we would probably take care of the problem. Instead of throwing things in trash cans where they end up in lower income neighborhoods, you know, where most of us don't, where the rest of us don't, don't see the problem. So I think that the first thing for me that's really important to acknowledge is the history of this. And you know, every time there's back against um, this emphasis on consumerism, the companies have mounted another, have created another nonprofit. So then you got like the recycling partnership. And just recently we have Alliance to End Plastic Waste. And you do this massive millions and millions of dollars marketing campaigns. And they're responsible for recycling. You know, it's really the companies that um, you know, they help to create the recycling programs, they market the recycling programs, which dumps all of the, which completely ignores the production stage and dumps all of the um, effort onto 
uh, public, you know, our taxes basically and our end consumer, individual consumers. So it's all kind of nuts. But then I would also say, is it bad? Because people say, well, it doesn't hurt, right? And it's better than nothing. It's this whole planitude argument, right? It's better than nothing. It's this kind of like one plus one equals 100 kind of argument, though. In this case, I think it's one plus one minus 10 equals 100. Because I think when you say, well, we just need it to be bigger, but it's not just that we need it to be bigger. It's the distraction of these consumer-oriented strategies, right? It's that people think that these are legitimate and that these are working and it prevents us from asking what actually needs to be done. And Koch understands that very, very well. And so does Exxon, you know, um, but it's the distraction. So I think in some ways, no, I would say that they are making things worse, not better. That, that it's not just you have a little bit of, you know, like in here, here we have about 9% of plastics get recycled, yay. But I think the one of the consequences of that 9% of plastic recycling rate is that 91% of plastics aren't getting recycled because we're not actually dealing with the causes of the problem. Um, so again, it's just this complete failure to, to acknowledge the actual causes of the problem. And yet it's, like I said, there's a lot, I think one of the ways in which my work does differ from say someone like Naomi Klein, who basically just talks about hypocrisy. And I, I love Naomi Klein's work, she's a huge influence. Um, but I think I really emphasize also that there are a lot of good intentions in here, that people are scared. They want to do something, they feel powerless, they want to do something, but making people feel empowered is not what should be the focus of environmentalism. You know, doing so, what we need to do needs to be the focus. So, so I guess not surprising then, I'd like to, to talk a little bit more about recycling. Um, so, Cause yeah, a few years ago, I came with a, a, another short book on recycling. Um, I was asked by MIT Press to uh, to write a book presenting this idea and practice of recycling in a very concise way. Uh, and yeah, I, mean, I didn't have, I guess I wasn't at the, the place yet in my thinking uh, and also not courageous enough, I guess, to say right, recycling is crap, you shouldn't do it. Uh, that would be kind of a, you know, challenging uh, conclusion to a book. But, but I did get a lot more critical to the practice of recycling in writing it, right? Uh, and so one of the conclusions I come with is that recycling is necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? You need you need something more. So I guess it's you know hedging it a little bit. Um, so your your argument is, is stricter there then. Um, so but there are two things around that I wonder about because one of the things that I wrote about that I thought was uh, in a way counterintuitive is this idea that recycling has gotten in many places too convenient right because we have i mean especially in norway it's like super high-tech uh country where basically machines take care of all of it for you so which takes all this material you know out of sight out of mind you don't really have to face up to the consequences of you just discarding it um so so that's one side of it i mean how how involved do you think you have to be in engaging with uh, your material or any waste material you generate mm -hmm. uh since other places i mean wrote about uh this one place in japan that's like zero zero waste village where they sort all their waste in like 30 plus categories and it's like insane uh but they don't generate much waste in part because they really have to deal with the consequences at a personal level of sorting this waste. Mm -hmm. 
And that makes me think, you know, to what degree is what you describe, you know, like 91% of plastics just getting thrown out? To what degree is that an American story? Uh, are there elsewhere where these, you know, well-intended practices actually achieve more than they do in America for, well, American reasons? Yeah, that's a great um, that's a great question too. And like so many Americans, I'm I'm pretty not very knowledgeable about what's going on around the rest of the world. But I do know that certainly there are places like I know Denmark. I think has a, a, like almost a hundred percent rate of glass recycling. Um, there are I think pretty much anywhere in Europe probably does a little better with recycling. Um, but I'm not sure that the consumer experience. I, I've kind of come to move away from the importance of the consumer experience. You know. Because I think that, um, that, yeah, recycling is necessary, but insufficient, but I would say like really, really, really insufficient that there should be very little to recycle, you know? And the problem right now is that we're not focusing on the production phase at all. And we're just assuming we're gonna recycle and that most of the recycling that takes place in the United States. And I'm not sure, I don't think plastics recycling is any easier. It's just a very difficult thing to do uh, te technologically. Um, so I doubt it's a whole lot better anywhere else, but, um, but uh, you know, it's basically feel-good recycling. Like most of the stuff that you put in the recycling bin in this country, a lot of it's not getting recycled. And people have heard that. I actually have a, a parody video on my website called, um, what is it? What's the, I can't even remember what it's called, but my nephew and I made it. And it's about this guy talking about how he's recycling this plastic thing. And there are these bubbles popping up, telling him why that's actually not gonna get recycled. He absolutely refuses to, and then he just erupts in anger, you know, like, ah, just let me recycle. So it's this, you know, it's like people are so desperate to feel like they're doing something that recycling, I think is sort of the gateway drug. I know it was for me, even as a, as a, as a 10 year old, you know, recycling was the gateway drug, but um, to be an environmentalist, but, but most of that's not getting recycled. So I think that, you know, I'm not sure that consumers doing more to sort the recycling really helps with that problem. And I would say, and people say, well, but you need people to feel like they're empowered. You need people to feel like they're empowered and recycling helps with that. But I'm like, well, how's that worked out? We've been doing that. We've been empowering people for 50 years. And how's that worked out? That doesn't seem to be the answer to empower people. And I just feel like so much of what of environmental strategies, so much of it is just making people feel good making people feel empowered and actually making things worse because we're making people feel empowered so they don't have to ask the hard questions. So um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not anti-recycling. I myself cannot get myself physically as someone for whom this was the gateway drug when I was 10 years old to stop recycling. I actually talked to someone who's, uh, who's a, you know, a scholar of recycling when I was at Loyola and I apologize to him. I'm not bringing up his name right now and and i said well do you recycle and he said no i don't recycle which i think is really really telling he i think he's a, he's a social scientist he doesn't recycle and i um i'm trying to get myself actually honestly not to recycle because i do think at this point it does more harm than good but it's very very hard to do um you know i mean i am certainly myself susceptible to green virtue um, less whole planitude, I think, but some, somewhat. These are very, very, very powerful logics, and there's reasons that they're powerful. Um, so, does that address your question, Jen? I feel like I. Yeah, yeah no. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think so. And in a way, you're it's like you're speaking about Norway, right? Because we are we are a country with lots of green virtue. We are very good at recycling. Uh, it's very clean and very like beautiful in Norway, but we are an extremely affluent country, spending lots and lots of money and resources. Uh, we're traveling all over the world with airplanes on our trips, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. So there, there's some of that. I think Norway is not asking some of the hard questions. And of course, I haven't even mentioned uh, pumping up oil, etc. I actually don't, you know, again, I would say I don't think that I was just at a symposium where someone didn't come because he won't get on a plane. And, and you know, my my nephew, uh, who's a who's a rising environmental leader uh, in Israel, actually, um, who's you will hear of eventually. Um, he told me a few years ago, as he was sort of um, Getting, he says, you know, I've decided I'm not going to uh, uh, fly. You know, maybe I'll fly once a year. And I'm like, the hell you aren't going to fly. Like, you're not going to break your grandmother's heart. I mean, you know, what does that do? It does a achieves absolutely nothing except making a statement. And, you know, my brother chose to fly across the ocean and raise his family there, you know, um, 30 years ago. And the hell that we're not, you know, the only way we can see each other is to fly back and forth across the ocean. The only way we can have in-person symposia is to fly back. And I don't think that you and I getting on airplanes is the problem. And that our virtuous individual choices are the problem. You know, the problem is technologically making that more sustainable. It's getting rid of private flights. You know, it's making that more efficient, more sustainable in every possible way. And us not taking flights we don't need to, for sure. It's high-speed rail. It's, you know, all kinds of things. But it's not you and I deciding that, no, I'm not going to see my family. I'm not going to see my mother. I'm not going to see my grandmother because, God forbid, the carbon footprint, which is, a, you know, as we all know, a concept that BP invented. Thank you very much. And it's been very, very, very effective um, strategy. And... Um, you know, I'm not going to be in person with my colleagues, which I think is actually really, really important. And we all know that Zoom doesn't cut it completely, right? And as you know, I say on Zoom, and this is this Zoom is great. Okay, I don't want to say that, you know, but we all know that when you actually get get in person, that other things happen as well. And so, um, yeah, I just really have started to push back against this, like no flying, like I won't fly, you know, or we fly, and that's why we're so horrible. Um, I don't think we're, I don't think that those individual choices are really where we need to focus. Um, well, speaking of, yeah. speaking of that question of, again, of individual versus larger, in particular market forces, um, Mariana had a question, um, can there be, a green capitalism or is this ultimately about breaking free from capitalist modes yeah. of production consumption and growth so uh first of all i would say i do not use the word capitalism in my book i don't fool anybody everybody then asks me questions like you know that clearly is that my book is a is an anti-capitalist rant but i don't use the word capitalism because it has so much baggage and instead i think that if we were to all you know, if I were to have used that word, I would have lost 95% of the people I'm trying to reach, both on the left and the right, immediately. Well, I'm not trying to reach anyone on the right, but the left and the middle, you know. Um, and the right would have just, you know, been able to dismiss the book right off. But um, instead, I ask questions like, what does our economy do? How does it work? What does it maximize? What do, what do we think it maximizes? Whom should our economy be for? Because I think if you ask those questions, you actually have a much larger area of agreement. And then most people would say, no, our economy, an economy should not actually impoverish most of the people who participate in it. And you can go like, hello, you know, 
<laughs> okay, so that's the first thing. And second of all, green capitalism actually brings me back, Polly, to your question about humor, because I think it's an hysterically funny uh, phrase, actually, just like green growth. Or, um, and I think that humor, what you're saying, I totally agree. I think humor is an enormously powerful tool. I don't think people have to use it. I think you can write really powerful arguments without humor. But if you're a smart ass like me, I have three older brothers. It's just my really funny family. This is born in um, it's the way I move through the world. Then by all means, like let it fly. And because I think that it not only can can um, kind of urge people to let their guard down, right, um, and to be more receptive to your arguments, but also I think that part of the problem with environmentalism, American environmentalism, historically in the past, is this complete absence of irony, you know. Um, I think when I first wrote a version of this book and Richard White said, um, oh no, I was writing parodies. It was my Green Me Up JJ column where I was writing this, just nonsense uh, green advice to people. You know, like I wrote advice to a hitman about how to be greener. And Richard was like, nah, people aren't gonna get it. And I'm like, how could people not get it? And then I would present this and I would have people ask me, like environmental scholars ask me, they would say, so um, what I really love about that is that like you just set aside your judgments about him being a hitman and you just gave him advice. I'm like, oh my God. So this lack of irony is a problem because if you can't appreciate irony, you can't appreciate complexity and contradiction, right? So it's actually hysterically funny that people talk about green capitalism. It's hysterically funny they talk about green growth. The fact that BP tells us that, that, that we're the problem, I'm the problem, you know, is hysterically funny, right? Um, the fact that, you know, Coke, um, says that, you know, I personally can, you know, if I recycle my plastic bottles, I'm gonna personally clean up the plastic problem. That's really, really funny. So I would say, no, you can't have green capitalism there. It's an absolute, um, um, what do you call it, oxymoron. And um, because capitalism, well, I mean, maybe it depends, you know, again, this is why you don't use it. People define it in so many different ways, right? But the way I would understand it, you don't. Um, capitalism inherently, um, says that the way to provide our needs and wants is to maximize profits, individual profits. And, to, and then to do that, you have to maximize growth and that is inherently unsustainable, is inherently profoundly inequitable. I think we've seen that over the last three, 400 years. It's been uh, amply proven and um, yeah. So I would say no. And then we have uh, another question then about greenwashing. Right. So because you mentioned greenwashing as, as something that kind of happens, whether that's, you know, recycling practices or individual advocacy within environmentalism or in the case of kind of research about sustainability science. Right. That we, we kind of end up greenwashing these things. And and uh, Philip makes a point that it's it's uh, kind of lacking in, in depth, uh, devoid of, of any substance. So. Is it worth us looking into it? Is it worth us as, as I guess, scholars um, researching and talking about it? Um, and yet, you know, if we ignore it entirely, do we risk becoming complicit in the greenwashing activities? So, so how do we, I guess, go about critiquing greenwashing without making it be greenwashed? Okay, uh, I'm not quite sure I completely, so first of all, thank you, Philippe, and hello. Um, I'm not sure I completely understand that, so I'm gonna try and then let me know if I didn't. 
uh, grasp it. But I think that, um, should we ignore greenwashing? Absolutely not. I think greenwashing is a huge part of the problem. The companies are brilliant at it and they are brilliant at capitalizing on the environmentalist logics, the well-intentioned environmentalist logics to um, pretend to do something while doing nothing. And even within the corporations, I think you can have some good intentions. I mean, you can have a sustainability officer who's, you know, at Coke maybe, who's, you know, thinks that they're, they're actually doing some good by, um, you know, encouraging people to recycle or creating marketing campaigns or by, um, you know, that Exxon thinks that by building a, a LEED certified building, um, that they're actually doing some good uh, within in that building. Actually, in my book, I talk about how we need a new certification in addition to LEED that's for corporate headquarters called Green Roofs for Economic and Environmental Destruction. You can figure out the acronym yourself. And um, in which, you know, people build these incredibly green buildings and, and eat, drink uh, acai smoothies and, you know, enjoy the world's cleanest air while they um, figure out how to massively uh, pollute you know, and destroy our ecosystems all over the world. Um, so no, greenwashing, I think, is one of the most important um, problems that we have right now. Um, I think as environmentalism has moved to the mainstream, as environmental crises have really exploded and have become impossible to ignore, the companies have gone from denial to co-optation and just really, you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to um, convince us. So all these corporations have huge sustainability pages and sustainability offices. And it's, in my view, it's 100% bunk. It's worse than that because it's bad intentions. Um, so no, no. When you have a company like um, Exxon that says, you know, I think Time called Exxon Green Company of the Year about 10 years ago, you know, probably still would. And you can say, no, you're, you're actually financing um, fossil fuel extraction to the tune of about 42 billion a year. Uh, until you stop doing that, we don't really care that you're buying clean energy in West Texas. You're using that to actually um, power your fossil fuel operations in West Texas. No, this is not sustainability. Um, you know, founding this um, uh, alliance, you know, your third or fourth nonprofit to um, convince us that consumers that they're the problem and their sol the solution is not sustainability. I think it's, it's hugely important to push back against these companies, but they're brilliant. They're very, very good at plugging into these logics that um, that environmentalists deeply subscribe to and are very, very powerful. And so it's very, very hard to, to push again. Philippe, does that answer your, does that address your question about greenwashing or, or feel free to- Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it did. It was exactly, I mean, because you would say then that looking at greenwashing is actually one of the main things, you know, is, is to point out this, well, those ironies um, that that they are, you know, doing one thing over here and that may look great, but yet it's supporting the whole reason they're doing it is to support a structure that's actually, you know, destroying um, the thing that they purport to love. Um, and I think your, your point in a lot of this is how, you know, also the, the way that we consume, the way that we produce and consume things, we, we've got to stop um, thinking about them this way. And, and I think your, your point about, oh, well, let's just make a new environmentally friendly building, or let's just buy, you know, an electric car uh, to replace our car is like, well, that's a, in a way, that's a fine logic. If you actually needed a new car, or if you actually needed a new building. But what we see right now is that people do it, and they don't actually need that thing yet. Right. And you it's know? also like, what determines whether you need a new car? It's whether you have, it's how much you have driven that car and what other options you have instead of driving, right? And, you know, there's all kinds of systemic 
um, systemic, uh, you know, conditions that basically shape whether you need a, a, a new car or not. So I'm sorry, did I interrupt you, Doug? Um, but I do want to just say, yeah, to push back against this, you know, because again, they just brilliantly tap into whole plenitude and green virtue, like everything they do then has this sheen of virtue, right? So it makes them look good. And, uh, you know, I talk about in the book how Walmart, when they were, when their reputation was going down the drain, what did they do? You know, they didn't fix their labor practice. They didn't fundamentally fix their environmental practice. They didn't stop bribing foreign governments. They didn't stop hiring prison labor. You know, they established a big sustainability initiative because of this connection with virtue, and it meant they didn't actually have to do anything and to fix their 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 business practices. But I think that, you know, they they plug brilliantly into this. You're awesome when you do anything. It'll just add up logic that is so intuitive to so many uh, people who care about and are worried about what's going on. And so that so many people say, well, it's better that they're doing something. You're like, it's not better that they're doing something. It's worse that they're doing something because it means instead of, it's not one plus one equals 100, it's one plus one minus 50 equals 100 because all this greenwashing is actually prevent us from forcing them to ask and forcing governments to ask, what do we actually need to do? So, so to follow up to follow up on that, then um, since we have you then as an expert in the room with us, I'm going to ask for some advice. You see, um, so Dolly and I we work at an oil university. That's University of Stavanger, the oil capital. Uh, and I mean, it is obvious to most people at university that that is not the future. So the the new ten year strategy of the university has green transition as this main strategy and this is where you know one of these kind of salient concepts that show up this idea of the green transition you need to shift away in a green direction from whatever you're doing uh, pops up everywhere uh, so it's fine you know as humanity scholars we can work with that concept there's some there's some room there to do interesting things uh, even with its limitations it's a way for us to insert ourselves into some conversations where we might not otherwise be invited into. I mean, people might still not listen to us, but that's an entirely different matter. Um, what would you, I mean, based on your book then, um, yeah. inject into such a discussion then of, of green transition? You know, what do you think of a concept like that? I mean, do you mind if I address the question of like, what can you do, what can universities do? And what yeah, you can also do that, because that's interesting to us, yeah. Yeah. Um... Because I think, again, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really the what can we do person. It's not that I don't, I have some knowledge in there, but I'm more about how can we think about things differently is where I feel more comfortable giving advice, you know. But at the same time, so along those lines, and, and if you look at the 39 ways to save the planet, some of them, especially with consumerism, I relent a little bit and talk about different consumers habits, but most of them are actually about thinking differently. Um, but I would say, because I get this question a lot, you know, from students, from universities that all have like sustainability programs, you know, that have um, now centers for environmental humanities, like what can we do? And I would say to students, I say like, okay, you know, you can bicycle, that's great. You can turn off your lights, you know, that's great. You can have contests to see which dorm, you know, can use less energy, whatever. That's not gonna really do much. And the, the, the way that you can really make a difference is like pay attention to your education. That's the single most important thing you can do. And also think to the degree that you have the ability to do this and not everybody does. Because again, we cannot put all this on behaving ethically within an unethical system. And the university in some ways has to operate within 
a highly unethical system, but to the degree to which you have the options, think carefully at this stage in your life about how you're going to move wealth through the world, because that's the most important thing you can do right now. Not all of you will have that, that, that option. You know, a lot of people have to take whatever job they can possibly get. But so I say those things. And then in terms of the university, I'm like, again, the most important thing a university can do is not to figure out how to build more energy efficient buildings. It's to think about their endowments and to think about how they move wealth through the world. And I don't know, endowments probably aren't as big a thing in American in European universities, but, and then to also think about curriculum. And I think for you, you know, what's really, really encouraging to me is, is you know, in my view, I think we all probably agree, everyone on this Zoom screen, that humanities, like we will never ever uh, address climate change and other crises effectively without the tools and the ways of thinking that humanities bring to the table. And so it's enormously, encouraging to me when I see these environmental humanities centers coming up and really, really doing significant, substantial, wide and deep uh, work, because I think that the more that you guys can bring humanities to the table, you know, and say, this is not just about science, this is not just about te technology, this is that we have to understand how these problems happen, what the ultimate causes are, how people think about them, how, how we need, you know, um, to me, that's absolutely fundamental. And we're seeing so little of that most certainly in this country. And I think it's true around the world, most environmental studies programs, some of them don't include humanities at all. They might include social sciences, which they think is the same thing as humanities, but it's fund fundamentally very, very different. Um, or humanities is kind of a, on the side. So to me, that's so much more important than, you know, the building that you're working in being uh, lead certified or, um, you know, or giving incentives to people to um, to bike to work as much as I love that because I'm a huge biker myself, um, or, um, you know, building electric charger stations, whoever, all those things are good, but they're not going to fundamentally change the equation. But a really powerful, strong humanity center, I think, can fundamentally change the equation. I mean, so does that sort of address what you're Yeah, and, and I think it gets to, I mean, Mikula had a, had a comment in the uh, in the chat about, um, you know, imagination that maybe it has to do part of our problem has to do with a, a huge collective lack of imagination of imagining living in a different way. Um, and so, you know, perhaps that's something that we need to consider as, and I would say particularly as humanities, right? Humanities can be about trying to think otherwise than the system that we're in right now. Um, which yeah. I think is what you're encouraging us at, at you know, that kind of base level. Um, Gabriella had a question. So I will uh, unmute Gabriella to ask her question. May I, ask, may I say something just very briefly in response sure. to Michaela though, because I see also she asked about artists and I would just say, yes, artists, artists and humanity scholars. Art is, and I have a, some about both in my 39 ways about the need for both of those things, because artists can imagine the future while still explaining what's wrong with the present, right, in, in ways. And I, I have um, a public art practice that's part of what I do, um, where I, I just really, really love using um, the tools and the methods and the superpowers of arts as well as humanities. Um, and I think arts actually have more of a say right now than humanities. I feel like humanities have really been shrunk while arts are being more and more recognized as being important, but, um, but thank you for bringing that. Anyway. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, what, what you're saying in your project is super interesting to me, and I can't wait to re read the book, but I'm, I will confess I'm both a recovering uh, economist, I did that as an undergraduate, 
and a recovering Catholic. Um, and so there was an encyclia in the 1980s talking about the um, a papal encyclia by the American papacy to talk about what a just society would look like through an environmental lens. And I think that that's, you know, while I am not at all religious, I that that encyclia speaks to me as a person in the humanities and a person who cares deeply about these things. And it has everything to do about what you're talking about and what, what is value and what is just and what do we owe those who are less affluent. And so, you know, the conversation you're having is particularly American, but also particularly Western European in some ways. And so I, I, I think that, that, that thinking about some of these other spaces outside of history and in some other ways brings, I think, some of the creativity and imagination that I think you're trying to, to, to engage with, Jenny. The other thing that I would say is, as a recovering economist, I went to college in the mid-1980s, and I was a strident Keynesian econo economist. I hated Friedman as he was emerging in more and more robust ways even by then. But there was this moment in, and the, again, this is a particularly American story, but I think Europe does it in a different way. And I think in perhaps a more robust way than the US ever did between the New Deal and the Reagan revolution, when there was a tax system that really taxed the wealth, maybe too much at the top, I don't know. Um, maybe not enough at the top, I don't know. But there was also this I, fundamental idea about what a normal profit was. And a normal profit was 6%, 3 to 6%. It wasn't big. It was really at the margin and it was really focused not on sort of the consolidation and global corporations we have of today, but a smaller regional uh, um, and often, you know, some of them did sort of um, uh, what is it sort of moral economics like H.J. Himes. They're not perfect. They're not great. Right. Like there are good things about them and very bad things about them. But this when you're trying to re-engage the system, I think it would be helpful for us to look back to maybe a moment. And this is a moment I see all the time in my work, particularly working on food and food systems between the 1930s and the 1980s, and where there is this particular economic moment and governmental regulation and, you know, uh, you know, the historical thinking might not be it, but the consensus historians, I'm, they're not, I'm not a fan of them, but there is this moment where things are working really pretty well. And, and the idea is don't, don't, it's not too much. What is enough? And I think asking the question is, what is enough mm -hmm. is a good one to ask, because part of my answer to some of your statements is it's greed. And we've let greed get away. And then to sort of claw, try to claw that back, which I think you're doing. So I really admire your work and I will leave it there. So I'll just try to reply really briefly. I know we're getting to the end, but I really, really appreciate both of those interventions and comments. Uh, and reply to what I've presented. And yeah, agreed. I mean, I agree, but I also think it's institutionalized greed and that people aren't necessarily, um, um, I think this is what capitalism assumes, right? And I think it's it's wrong, this fundamental assumption of economics that people are fundamentally greedy. And I don't think that's true. I think we have examples to disprove that every single day, all day long, all around the world. Um, but I think it's institutionalized greed where people think that that's legitimate 
that's how they're supposed to be behave. Um, and, but I would say, first of all, religion, I don't talk much about religion, but um, I think that's a really, really interesting comment. And I would say, um, there's also a Jewish concept, I'm Jewish, called um, Tikkun Olam, Repair the World. There's a really quite wonderful book by Jonathan Sachs called Healing a Fractured World, which I was forced to read because I had a conversation with um, Patty Limerick at a church in Boulder recently um, about it. Um, and I didn't think I was going to uh, like it, but I actually found it quite powerful when really thinking about some concepts in, uh, buried in Judaism for um, thinking about these problems. And then in terms of, yeah, I mean, I, I was alive in the 60s and 70s, right? So I remember when uh, our economy was more equitable. And, and I agree, people think that the economy now is normal. The economy now is insane, right? It's extreme. One of the things I talk about is redefine extremism. I mean, you know, we have an extremist economy. And uh, I agree, if we, were, if we were simply to roll back our economy and our um, institutionalized, you know, economic policies to where they were in the 1960s, we would all be better off. But not everybody was. I mean, I think if you talk to African-American communities, you know, they were being aggressively redlined, they were being excluded from the economy in so many ways, I think, um, that capitalism, capitalist policy still allowed to happen um, along with racism. But I do think that one of the, to me, one of the symbols of how crazy our economy is, is that, um, is that you have to have, that we have a special category for a company that wants to incorporate where they, um, where the motive is to do something besides maximize shareholder profits. That's pathological. That's really a pathological economy when you actually have to apply for a special category of incorporation if you actually want your company to do something productive in society and valuable. And I agree, Gabriel, that's, that's new. You know, um, the corporations weren't, it wasn't all, a corporation sort of duty of a corporation was, was this, this interpretation that it means that you have to maximize shareholder profits or it's not legal, you know, that that's what you legally have to do. It's actually a fairly new interpretation of, um, of what uh, corporate, you know, um, motivation, you know, needs to be. So um, that's, that's where historians come in, right? We can say, we can denormalize things. We can say, no, this actually hasn't always been true. It's like, it's like uh, the second amendment, right? With guns, all this insane insanity that's taking, you know, 60,000 lives a year in this country now um, that, uh, this is all quite new, the way that um, the Second Amendment is being interpreted. So, um, yeah, we have powers, we have superpowers, and we need to wield them. And it's very. I think it's it's not okay. This is kind of off, but I think it's it's actually it's it's not coincidental that you can track the rise of STEM, this incredible emphasis on STEM, and the fetishization of STEM um, education with the rise of neoliberalism since 1980. That is, I think, that is not at all coincidental. The, to, and, and pushing out the humanities. Well, I think it's great to um, to kind of close this off on your observation that, you know, we have superpowers. Um, and I think uh, historians and, and really all of the humanities and arts have superpowers um, that have to be mobilized. Um, otherwise, we're, we're just spinning our wheels. And I think that's what you're trying to say is, is quit spinning out and let's actually get somewhere. Um, so I just want to thank Jenny Price for coming and talking to us today. Um, Stop Saving the Planet, an environmentalist manifesto uh, with W.W. Norton in 2021. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been, and thank you for all your comments. They've been absolutely 
get right to the heart of what I'm trying to do. So I really appreciate it. 